Good afternoon. It's really good to see you. I feel like you all should win a prize for finding the North Side. I told a few people the North Side in the month of December has felt a bit like one of those Where's Waldo books. You never quite know where we're going to be. And you have to look really hard to find us, but you've done it, so good job. Uh, It was really good a few weeks ago to see several of you, many of you, frankly, at the Advent Fair that we had on the west side. I did announcements on the west side in the morning last week and saw a handful of people as well. And so uh, it's been fun to navigate what has been a rather disruptive month as we head towards a very exciting January, a very exciting new year. And so uh, it is wonderful for us to gather one last time here today. This is our final normal service here at Skyland. Next week, we'll be together with the west side and the east side as we have our lessons and carols service. And so it'll be a quite full and festive occasion. Uh, But we get to, the handful of us today, kind of pray and, and offer this final Sunday to the Lord and do so with John the Baptist. Who else would we do it with but John the Baptist? If we had had a service last week, we would have heard really the part one of two Sundays we've set together with John the Baptist. If you were at our west side or east side, you may remember we read about John the Baptist. And we do so again today as we're now into the third Sunday of Advent. Our first Sunday together, but is the third Sunday of this season. Advent is one of my favorite times of the year. It's a season where we learn to wait, which is a very hard thing to do. My kids listen to a kid's Advent album this time of year that has this reoccurring refrain that says, it's hard to wait. One whole song just says over and over, it's hard to wait. And even as an adult, I really resonate with that song. It feels deeply true that it's hard to wait because everything else in our world right now over the last few weeks and the few weeks to come tells us you can't wait. Get it now. Christmas sales begin last week. Black Friday sales continue until Christmas. On and on it goes. There's no need to wait. And yet as Christians in Advent, we are told, slow down, press pause, catch your breath, and wait. Recenter. Turn your heart, as I just prayed. Turn your hearts back to the Lord through a season of waiting and watching and repentance. It's a hard thing to do. Because I think right now, as we're less than two weeks away from Christmas, your heart and your mind, even as we sit here, are probably in a dozen different places. You're trying to press in and engage, but you're also thinking of all the gifts you haven't purchased. You're thinking of the travel plans you still need to make, thinking that you've never done it, but this is the year you're going to send out a Christmas card. You know, all the things that are swirling around in your head. And yet, in spite of all that, in spite of the irregularity of our gatherings as a Northside community, we sit here right now, and with all that we have, we press into Advent. And we say, Lord, make us ready for Christmas. We want to greet you with hearts that have set in the darkness, waiting for the light to come. Today's not only the third Sunday of Advent, it's also called Gaudete Sunday. It's why we have a pink candle If uh, you were wondering about the pink candle, if you're new to these rhythms and you thought, did we run out of purple and put pink and thought you wouldn't notice? Uh, No, it's intentional. Gaudete is Latin for rejoice. It's the Latin word for rejoice. And all around the world on the third Sunday of Advent, Christians sit with the theme of joy. What does it mean to have joy, believing and hoping that even in the depths of the darkness, that the journey of Advent that we're on has a trajectory? that it's headed towards joy. That's why we celebrate Gaudete Sunday. We say this journey has a definitive end, that it is headed 
indisputably towards joy because we know where this story goes. You've heard it in our readings already. If you were attentively listening, Isaiah 35 says, the wilderness shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Psalm 146 said, happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. This is a joyful, joyful day. If you turn on the radio on your way home tonight, I think within five minutes you would hear the phrase, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Almost indisputably, you would hear it. And I couldn't agree more, and yet for likely vastly different reasons, because it is the most wonderful time of the year. It is the most joyful time of the year, but it's not because of nostalgia or sentimentality. It's not because of George Bailey, right? It's not because the commercials tell you you're going to get a Lexus with a bow on it on Christmas morning. I've never known someone who got a Lexus with a bow on it on Christmas morning. And yet, if you watch any television, you think this is where this is headed. It's going to be a good year. No, the reason it's the most wonderful time of the year is because, as the scriptures say, the light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That is the hope of Christmas. That is the longing that we enter into in Advent, that there is an unshakable joy. And so we come back to this year after year after year, and we sit with the exact same people who tell us the exact same story, because every year we need to be reminded, because we lose sight of where it's headed. We lose sight of the joy. There's two primary figures you sit with every Advent, the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. John the Baptist. I'm very tempted to make you sit here for 55 minutes and just preach all four Sundays in one go. But it's cruel and unkind, and I love you people, and so we won't do that. I'm going to stick to the text, and we're just going to sit with John the Baptist, although it is very tempting. Matthew 11, if you had like the greatest hits collection of John the Baptist's life, Matthew 11 is undoubtedly a deep cut. Like when you think of John the Baptist, this is not the story that first comes to mind. Maybe you think of the baptism of Jesus. Maybe you think of his beheading. That's a memorable one. Remember that as a kid. That one really stuck with me, the head on the platter. You don't think of John kind of discreetly in jail talking to his disciples and sending his disciples to go find Jesus and say, are you the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another? Like this does not jump to the top of your mind. You think of John wearing camel skin and eating bugs out in the wilderness. And yet here we are, third Sunday in Advent, really having to wrestle with this singular question. Are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? Some have read this and really speculated, is John losing his faith? Has John spent so much of his life following Jesus, but now in his moment of need really questions and doubts and is walking away? No, I don't think so at all. Jesus in our reading says, Among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is not doubting John's faith, and so we shouldn't either. So then we have to ask, what is going on? What is this text about? Here's what I think is going on here. I believe John has walked with Jesus for a really long time. He's pointed to Jesus at every step of that journey, and yet here in this moment, he has a new set of questions about his own life and his own story, namely facing his own suffering and impending death. And I believe he's saying, Jesus, just as you've been with me every step of the way up until this point, are you with me in this new challenge? Can I believe and trust that you will enter into this space just as you have every time before? If you have time this week, I have a 
project for you. I think you'll really enjoy it. Go online and watch the set of videos on John the Baptist that were produced by the National Gallery in King's College, London. If you go to YouTube and you search National Gallery John the Baptist, you'll find it. It's the first thing that comes up. It's a playlist of 11 different videos. And what they did, it's really profoundly wonderful. Uh, One of the curators at the National Gallery in London and a theologian from King's College London sit and through 11 videos tell the significance and the story of John the Baptist through art. The National Gallery alone, they said, has something like 120 different images of John the Baptist in their collection alone. And yet they travel around Europe as well. And they, they sit with the way in which John has been depicted in art. And it really reminded me, and I think would remind you as well, just of how significant John the Baptist is and the way in which he has centered in sacred art in countless ways. It's a really well done series. And they point out so many different things that I'd never really noticed about John. But I'll tell you just one that I think is worth your time. If you watch this, and if you don't, then this is really a key takeaway, is they point out When you look at art, one of the quickest ways you can identify John is not just his wild hair, it's not just his camel skin clothing, it's his finger. If you look at art of John the Baptist, one of the quickest ways to tell it's John is his finger. And they say, rightly, he's one of the easiest to identify because of this. Because if you look at much of sacred art, especially medieval art, you don't have a clue who these people are. Let's be honest. There's another bishop decked you know, to the nines and the hat and the robes. There's another monk looking very holy, but you don't know who it is. But John, you always know it's John because of his finger. I pulled a few photos. If you want to, Esther, throw these up. I'll give you just two examples. Go back one for me to the one that no one can see. <laughs> if you could see this, it'd blow you away. It's so good. Uh, this is an altarpiece, an altarpiece by an artist called Crivelli. And what you notice in this, if you look it up, the altarpiece by Crivelli, you'll see all these monks, all these bishops, you don't know who they are, but in the bottom left corner, you see John and Camel's skin pointing, but in a very subtle way. Esther, if you go to the next one, this is zoomed in, you see he's pointing to the scroll that's in his hand. And the scroll in Latin says, behold the Lamb of God, the Agnus Dei. It's John's mission in life to point to Jesus. And here he does it subtly. Other times it's far more dramatic. This next one is called Madonna and Child with Saints. You can look this up. And in this one, by contrast, you have this really dramatic, almost oversized finger, this curled finger pointing up. You can zoom in and see it closer. If you go to the next one, you see that finger. It's it's an incredible finger. He's saying, in case you missed the point of this painting, this is it. It's Jesus. Look at Jesus. John has been called the forerunner. He's the one who goes ahead of Jesus all the way along pointing to him. He spent his life doing this, but now in prison, he's facing his own death. And I think in a way, he's again asked to be a forerunner. He goes ahead of Jesus into death. And I think the heart of this question that he's wrestling with is saying, Jesus, will you enter in just as you have in life? Will you also be the Lord and the Messiah in death? It's a profound, profound question he's asking. St. Gregory the Great made this same observation decades ago in a sermon on this text. I want to read you a part of what he said, and I think it's on the screen as well. Gregory says this, John isn't asking this question because he doubts Jesus is the redeemer of the world. 
John now wants to know whether he who had personally come into the world would also descend personally into the courts of hell. For John had preceded Christ into the world and announced him there. He was now dying and preceding him to the netherworld. This is the context in which he asks, are you he who is to come or shall we look for another? But if he had spoken more fully, he might have said, since you thought it worthy of yourself to be born for humanity, say whether you will also think it worthy of yourself to die for humanity. In this way, I, who have been the herald of your birth, will also be the herald of your death. I will announce your arrival in the netherworld as the one who is to come, just as I have already announced it on earth. It's absolutely beautiful. If you find a better interpretation of that question, let me know, because I think that is just spot on. I think he hits the nail on the head. Now, that being said, we've looked at some fancy medieval art quoted Gregory the Great, before we get ahead of ourselves and think we're just very fancy and cultured, what in the world does this actually have to do with our lives, with the fact that you're going to get up from this place, go out into the world, into all of those distractions, all that busyness we've talked about? What does this actually mean for you and for me? And I think this is actually where this gets very, very helpful. It's been such a joy over the last year to walk with so many of you, to get to know people who 12 months ago were strangers and I didn't know anything about your story. And I've heard so many of your stories and you have heard one another's. We've sat over meals and out on Buford Highway and in coffee, over coffee and all, you know, all these different ways. We've heard our stories. Each one of our stories is unique and beautiful. And what I've realized is, is there's a commonality to them, even though there's differences. Some of us have walked with the Lord our entire lives, never have wavered in our faith. Some of us uh, find ourselves very new to faith, having just really begun and set out on this journey. Some of us have called ourselves Christians a long time and yet have gone through a season of very real crippling doubt and fear and anxiety. Yet I think wherever you find yourself, there are some version of these questions that you and I all wrestle with. Even just down to the very practical questions of life. Where should I work? Where should I live? Should I date? Should I stay single? Should I have kids? What if I can't have kids? Where should my kids go to school? On and on and on we could go. How will God heal my relational wounds? How will he heal my physical wounds? the physical ailment that I suffer from. All of us ask these kinds of questions. If you're honest with yourself, you could sit here for 10 seconds and a whole list of them would come to mind. The things that you genuinely wrestle with, the things that you think about when you go to sleep and when you wake up early in the morning because we live with very real questions. My family and I moved back here almost three years ago from 10 years away. I'd lived all across the country. Knew without a shadow of a doubt, God was inviting us to come home to be a part of this work. There was no question about it. And yet the list of unanswered questions was 10 times longer than that certainty. We had no clue how this was going to all work out, how it was going to line up and shake out, how these things would resolve. And in a sense, we were asking a version of John's question. We have followed you up until this point. Yet we want to know, are you the one who is to come? In a sense, saying, we've seen your faithfulness. We've seen, God, you be so good in our story. And yet we're at a new chapter, a new juncture, in which we have to believe you're going to enter into it. Because we haven't walked here before. We haven't asked these same questions. We don't know how this will resolve. Ultimately, that is the question every one of us will have to ask, just like John, when we face our death. 
not something we all like to think about. It will come sooner than any of us wants, but you and I are going to die. And someday the question we'll be wrestling with is the exact question John's wrestling with. Lord, are you going to be there in my hour of need when I meet my end? That's a question we have to ask. And I think it helps us live faithful lives now if we ask it sooner than later. Because knowing that that's on the horizon, one of the other things we then have to ask is in the, what we call ordinary stuff of life, the day in and the day out, we can ask the same question. God, how do you enter into this question, this place of need, this trial, and believe that he actually is there, that he goes ahead? Jesus sends great encouragement to John, and we'll wrap up here because that's encouragement to us as well. Verse four, Jesus answers John's disciples, and he says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. In a sense, I think Jesus is saying, take the questions you're asking, And learn to see the signs of my kingdom that are breaking in all around you. Because if you have eyes to see it, you can't miss it. His kingdom is breaking in everywhere we look. And what we ultimately have to have eyes to see is to actually see and believe that we are the ones who need that kingdom to break in. That we are the blind who need to see. We are the deaf who need to hear. We are the dead who need to and are being raised. And this is really significant because if you leave with some kind of abstract idea of this idea of God's kingdom, breaking in over there for them and those people, then it will never actually touch your life and will always be some abstract set of beliefs and not the core of your existence. You have to actually encounter and experience the love of God because otherwise you and I will be able to talk about the Bible, talk about church history, talk about theology all day long, yet never actually know the life of God. We're in the deep South. Everyone knows how to go to church in the deep South. You can be deeply churched and yet not filled with the life of God. And for Jesus to enter into these very real questions we have, we actually have to invite him into those places and encounter him there in a living way, not just in a set of beliefs, not just in an abstracted sense. I think you can relate to this. I've spent so much of my life growing up in the church talking about prayer, talking about Jesus, discussing faith. And I feel like only recently have I truly begun to pray, to actually live and walk by faith, to actually believe God is who he says he is, to believe God is real and to live as though God is real. That's the invitation before us. That's what Jesus is saying. And until we do that, it'll never actually be a joy that is unshakable. It'll be a joy that you can pick up and set down, take off and put on as you see fit. That's not something to rejoice about. That's not something to center our lives around. But if we can do this, we will know a joy that is unlike anything we've ever seen or heard, that when we find ourselves in darkness and in uncertainty, we actually, in the core of our bones, believe that the darkness will not overcome it. That's the hope of Advent. That's the hope that we step into. It's a very real and a very living hope. May it be true for us as we continue this journey. Mr. Abel, would you stand?
Lord Jesus. We long to know you. We long to believe with John that the questions we ask, the doubts we face, that when we ask, are you the one, that we see, we see your light at work shining in the darkness. Lord, would you calm our spirits, the things right now that are our deepest fears, the things that threaten to shake us and unnerve us. Would you root us in your love and in your joy? Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. My name is Trip Prince, and I'm the parish pastor here at Trinity on the north side. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people growing into Christ's likeness. You can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting us online at atltrinity.org. God bless you and have a great week.